Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. This is Paul Bass inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, some of the most interesting headlines these days and the days to come involve the woman who's uh, in our studio today for our first segment, Secretary of the State Stephanie Thomas, serving her first term. It's great to have you back in the studio and Happy New Year. Great to be here. Happy New Year, Paul. So you were the, you kind of were the story of the last, I would say the last statewide election because you were the person who was the underdog, came a big field of people going for an open seat secretary of state, which is our state's top elections official, in addition to maintaining the uh, registry database for businesses. And you went on, you beat a very experienced field, you got the job. Now it's a year later. How's it going? It's going great. I'm so glad I ran for the job because I absolutely love the job i thought i loved what i was doing before but i really love this (laughs) so i'm really excited to go to work every day to work on these issues every day so thank you to the people of connecticut for putting me here as a legislator you were involved one of your special eyes of interest remember correctly was election reform election laws yeah so now you're in charge of putting those laws into place in addition to into crafting policy and has there been a surprise so far has there been a moment where you said oh, this is more than I signed up for, or, oh, this is something I can really accomplish here. I didn't know this job is different. I thought it was basically what you expected. You know, it's my first job in state government, other than being a lawmaker. But when you're implementing laws, it's much different than creating laws. Um, It's a little harder sometimes. (laughs) But um, I think my biggest surprise was... um, There are a lot of challenges, both in terms of limited funding, for example, for public outreach. Um, You know, we're in this election denier sort of mindset in the country. So these are challenges, but I I tend to look at challenges as opportunities. So it has allowed us to really dig into the grassroots. Like we have businesses, towns, nonprofits helping us spread the word about election law, when to register, how to register. So we don't have the public education budget, but it's been a real opportunity, I think, to talk to real people on a daily basis and find out what can be helpful to them in a way that if we just had millions of dollars to spend, I don't think I would have gotten to that same conclusion. So it's been great. That's just thing. Sometimes you don't need more money. That's how you use exactly. what you got. You, got you need a little creativity. So since you got, boy, you got thrown into one mess, which might not have been a total surprise because your predecessors were in the same mess, which is Bridgeport. Yeah, when they yeah. have elections, a lot more people vote by absentee ballot in Bridgeport than any other city. And before you were Secretary of State, they had a mayor election four years ago and change where certain people were identified as having harvested absentee ballots, so kind of bringing in a whole bunch where you're not supposed to, where you get yeah. you know, a campaign worker. And then they allegedly did it again. A, 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 a video come to again, and they got a new election. I mean, this is so confusing. They yeah. had a new primary, a new general election. What was your first reaction? Like, what's your take on what happened in Bridgeport? You know, a lot of people don't realize that um, the Secretary of the State has no jurisdiction over election investigations, for example. That was in court, yeah. So, oh, SEEC. Yeah, SEEC, State Elections Enforcement Commission. Um, we also when they are investigating something, we don't get special information. We're like members of the public. So when the videotape surfaced, I think like all members of the public, like my bottom, like I'm like, what on earth? I mean, just having that visual was so disturbing. 
Um, so then, of course, we were involved in the lawsuit, um, provided some information to the judge uh, when he was um, creating the order, like about election dates and what's required, etc. Because your bailiwick right is how you run an election. Exactly. We have to make sure it's in compliance with state and federal law. So, um, yeah, I was shocked like everybody else. But again, you know, uh, there was legislation that was created around an election monitor. Um, but as you say, there have been court cases, I mean, going back decades. <laughs> and we have had election monitors in Bridgeport in the past. So I've been trying to approach it like, yes, we have the monitor. What more can the monitor do? But like we said before, sometimes you need you need a little creativity. And what else can we do that does not require legislation? So what did you come up with? Um, we've been doing a few things. Um, on the election monitor side, one of the changes that I thought was important was to make sure someone was in the town clerk's office every single day, all business hours. Mm. And when you have one person, that's difficult. They get the flu, they have a doctor's appointment, so we put two monitors in so that they could uh, timeshare, basically. I also, um, uh, they are election administrative um, experts in addition to knowing the law. Um, in the past, we've often had lawyers, so they have been able to do actual real-time trainings when a situation comes up, training the staff. And then so who are they? Like, what, what do they do? What's their background? Um, uh, they both have been registrars. Um, one of them was the director of elections in our office for many years. Um, also a former state representative, an attorney. So they cover the entire gamut. And I think just having that real-time responsiveness versus having to call our office, come up with a plan, and then do it especially it's only a 30-day window. Um, and then on the grassroots side, um, a lot of people just aren't familiar with election laws and why should they be? They're very complicated. <laughs> so we, for example, put together a video in English and Spanish explaining all the ins and outs related to absentee ballots. Um, yes, we put it on our social and on our website, but we also pulled a list of businesses in Bridgeport, sent it to all business owners, nonprofits, um, and other entities, trying to get them to help us share the What's information. What's the most important thing they need to know, that someone can't take your ballot from you? Um, but that's actually not true. <laughs> right, <laughs> because, a cop can, right? Um, people can as well, but it, it, the differentiator uh, is really related to how it's dropped off. So if you're going in person to your town clerk, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, um, immediate family basically can drop that off for you because the town clerk has to record who's dropping it off for you. Uh, if you are mailing it or putting it in a drop box, the list shrinks of who is allowed. Um, but, you know, some people are also confused about so who if is they're allowed? eligible. Oh, don't quiz me. It's very okay. specific in statute. Um, but it's not like someone who's working for the campaign with a bucket of 100. I believe it is the parent of a college, uh, a student in college, uh, the police officer, if someone has a dis disability, like you said, a registrar of voters, um, and like those types of election officials. 
Uh, and could someone bring a bucket with a hundred to? Uh, no, that I mean, is absolutely never. That's allowed. obviously the picture. That was wild, <laughs> Stephanie. I was just think what you think about when you say, "Oh my goodness, yeah, okay, this yeah. is what I signed up for." Yeah, it, it doesn't kind of even have to for. be a bucket. Like, you, you, you can't have ten. <laughs> <laughs> so what did that? Because part of what I'm thinking when I put myself in your shoes or trying to is that you kind of had a responsibility here to try to restore some trust in a process that's very fragile. The trust is fragile in our election system. And here was pretty naked evidence of repeated misconduct. Will you think, so you've told me about specific steps you yeah. took, not just getting the right people in the office at all times, but how, getting a more formed um, electorate. Are there other ways you were thinking about this in terms of even in a broader way? How am I going to restore people's trust or what, what what's at stake here? I mean, for better or worse, a few things. Um, as you say, a lot of these types of allegations have been going on for decades. So trying to shift culture during one 30-day period is pretty tricky, especially when you have no budget. Um, so I think education is definitely needed. We'll definitely be looking at some legislative um, things that could be tweaked. But I think it's really important not to or I try to reassure people that in 99 point something percent of cases elections are great flawless smooth um it's that you know most studies show there's about point zero 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 one cases of fraud um so I am aimed at looking at ways to prevent that very small number and i think people can feel very good that the other 99 point whatever percent um is running smoothly as it should and when is the special election january 23rd and is that the primary or the main that's the new primary two weeks from today as it happens paul <laughs> so if uh mayor ganem wins that he there, there probably won't be a general there will be there will dev definitely be a new general as long as there's more than one candidate mm -hmm. who wants one right if all the other candidates bow out it doesn't have to happen so i've thought uh, two takeaways i have from this don't directly have to do with your office but you still have the pulpit one question i had was the sec the state elections enforcement mm -hmm. commission so they identified a person four years earlier saying you did this don't do it again here's a wrap on your knuckles then that same person is recorded doing it again that's always made me wonder about how we enforce election law if every campaign in moment cannot be addressed at the time. So the election takes place in cases except for this, the person gets elected, mm -hmm. and then the same person can do it again. What does that tell us about the efficacy of our regulatory process? Um, happily, I get to run the office of the Secretary of the State. Um, enforcement is not in my bailiwick. Um, Agreed. I just it, wondered if you have concerns about it yeah, since it affects I mean, your job. I mean, publicly, I've heard the SEEC talk about, um, I believe, obviously COVID slowed down the investigation. People also don't realize how difficult it is to investigate some of these things. But they found her guilty and they, they gave did. her a little yeah, fine and finally. she did it again. Um, and I, I know they had to do hundreds of interviews, as I recall them saying. I. I think all cases relating to elections like should have, I don't know, like a 30, 60 day window where they have to be resolved because, you know, yeah. 
it doesn't help four years later. <laughs> right. So you'd like to see that kind of window. Something like that, or at least some sort of... Um, I know there was a case in the past where it was really difficult because you have to find the actual voter, interview them. Some people don't want to talk. Some people are busy. You can't schedule the meeting. Um, but... It, it needs to move faster. I think everybody can agree that yeah. from 2019 to 2023 is too long, even yeah. with a pandemic. My second policy question, one that's been long running, which is we were, we're moving right to excuse-free absentee balloting. Isn't that going to be on our, is there, there going to be a constitutional amendment for that? Uh, the constitutional amendment question will be on the ballot in November. And is it the first time? Uh, no. Uh, it was um, a joint question in 2024 about uh, what's called no excuse absentee voting and early voting in 2020. Uh, sorry, in 2014, it failed, but now it's back on the ballot this year. So progressives say, and members of the Democratic Party say, we want everybody to be able to just mail in, make it easier for more people to vote, and. It's been I'm tried. not sure that's what they say. Well, they okay. say, okay, no, tell me what they say. Why do they want excuse-free <laughs> I, I mean, balloting? first of all, I push back on these easy narratives like progressives and Democrats. Okay. Because I know lots People of who conservative like right. <laughs> Democrats, for right. example. But um, so uh, it's now called universal access to absentee ballot, but we still mm -hmm. call it no excuse absentee voting here. Um Interestingly enough, when it was first, uh, I think some of the first places that did it, year, like decades ago, it was to cut down on people lying. <laughs> because what was happening is, I don't know, you're a commuter. I'm sick, I'm going to be out of town, but you're not really, right? No, yeah, well, like you don't know sometimes in advance. So people were asking for absentee ballots. Turned out, legally, they weren't eligible so to make it vote. Legal. Yeah, so states, I think it was Texas who did it first, was like, let's make it legal. Um, so there are some good things. Um, a lot of states, for example, ha who have universal absentee ballots, the state or county mails out the applications. Political parties and candidates are not allowed to. It's handled by the state. That also cuts down on the opportunity for, you know, so-called operatives to integrate themselves in the process. So there are lots of good reasons that um, are not purely related to making it okay. like so-called easy. So when I used to talk about this to Denise Merrill, I'd say, Denise, every time I've done a story, mm -hmm. not that many times, but a number of times mm -hmm. about absentee ballots, and I interview people who, who turned them in, mm -hmm. it was always fraudulent. Always. Senior citizens were always taken advantage of. They always said, I have no idea. Someone came in and said, I just got to sign that. Then they took it away and it was the mm -hmm. candidate in their campaign. So she said, so I said, like, why do we want to go to absentee universal? Because then there's such an opportunity for that to be done on a mass schedule. And she would always say that the studies show that in Oregon, where in the modern days they've done it first, that it really works. Mm -hmm. She said that the fraud was minuscule. So, you know, I look at, I look, so, I, so it's a danger always when reporters look at anecdotal evidence, right? Of course. And that's my world, right? Yeah, like yeah. when I look at Bridgeport and, and over and over again, and that's sort of the, that's the business plan. That's the model for winning election there is to do wide-scale absentee ballot fraud. In New Haven, we haven't had close enough elections, but when it's close, yeah. they do do that. So am I just being sort of a reactionary, anecdote-driven, know-nothing-when-I-say-it-makes-me-scared? 
Maybe a little bit, Paul. But I also think people don't attack the right problem, right? Okay. Um, public education could do a lot. And I'm not just talking about Connecticut, not just Bridgeport, like nationwide. There's very little investment by the federal government, our state governments, in this space of civic education. Um, most states don't have requirements in school or they're minuscule and people are learning about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, all important things. But if I go out on the street and quiz most people about when's the last time you can enroll in a party, like our, our primaries closed or open, you know, what's a presidential yeah. preference primary? How long is a term for a senator? Like most people don't know these things. And when you don't have education around about something, you are then subject to bad actors manipulating you. And I mm -hmm. think that is a huge problem. Um, as I mentioned, if you had more investment and the state was handling some of these things, taking them out of the hands of political parties and political candidates, that also is another level of protection. So do you support the amendment to have... Uh, no excuses, universal absentee ballot? Yeah, because I think no matter what, all of these things have been around for decades, just not here in Connecticut, right? So over time, that same point zero 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 one uh, level of incidence is what has happened in other states that have had all of these um, uh, voting styles uh, over the years. So I'm not... You know, the math won't lie, right? Um, but here we have this court case in Bridgeport, and we have to think about how do you balance voter rights and access with greater security? And I think everybody from the legislature to our office to local election workers want to walk that line and tighten things. So if I hear you correctly, you think it's important to do this? Why? So more people have the access to vote? Yeah, um, for all the reasons I mentioned, um, there's just so many reasons. Uh, and so am I hearing right that you think this needs to be coupled with the government sending out the ballots and the um, and being more investment in civic education? Uh, definitely more investment in civic education. Anecdotally, I'll say sending out the ballots. I've just started looking at experiences in that area mm -hmm. from other states and if they have had success, I think it's something Connecticut should look at. So you're investigating how other states yeah, are doing yeah, it. Yeah. And we're talking to Stephanie Thomas, Secretary of the State here on Dateline New Haven, WNHHFM 103.5, live stream, newhavenindependent.org. You made another big decision, which is that you did not join some uh, the Secretary of State in Maine in keeping Donald Trump off the ballot based on allegations that he engaged in insurrection on January 6, 2001. What was your thinking there? So most people... You know, we listen to these federal stories, or these national stories, sorry, and we don't realize that every state has different laws. So in Maine, for example, the secretary is not elected. She's appointed by the legislature. And I don't know because I'm not a Maine expert, but I assume that's why their laws might be a little different because she's seen as a representation of the people because of that, because their legislative appointee in government selected this person. So they have a law on the books that if an individual 
files a hearing, she has to hear it and make a decision. So in accordance with Maine law, she had to make a decision based on the suit that individuals brought. And um, so that was her decision. In Colorado, different thing, Secretary of State, also not involved at all. Individuals sued the state about this. And like in many states, including Connecticut, secretaries have no jurisdiction over deciding who can or can't be on the ballot. Like here, we do have some jurisdiction on the positioning of those candidates, but only a court can remember, decide. Remember a Connecticut party, so it could position first after the main. That was very funny. <laughs> I do remember Even though that. was L. Weaver. Yeah, sorry, we'll go on. And um, people don't realize uh, someone did file suit here in Connecticut. They just happened to withdraw their case a few weeks ago. I suspect, I have no idea why, but in Colorado, the reason that case, I think, progress so quickly is they have a law um, mandating the time period in which these cases um, uh, need to be heard and whatnot. So anyone who has ever had to deal with the court system knows the fact that they had a local case that was appealed to the state Supreme Court and then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court in such a short window is an outlier. Like, I doubt that would happen in many other places. All right, so wait, what was your role here? What was your decision? I didn't have to make one. Oh, you didn't have to make one, okay. <laughs> I have no jurisdiction over it. We did look at, um, our legal team did look at our laws to make sure that What'd was the think? case. But but they determined I have no jurisdiction. <laughs> good job. I, don't, I think you're in a good position there. <laughs> Stephanie Thomas, you also are going to be overseeing the rollout of early voting. For the first time, yeah. we're going to have early voting. We talked about this during the election. You said you were in favor against a candidate who said too much changes before an election. You said you thought it works as long as it's a limited window. So how's it going to work? When does early voting start and what are, how are you going to make it work? Oh, gosh, let me try and explain it quickly. Um, so early voting starts this year with the presidential preference primary. Um, so March 26th will be the first day of early voting in advance of the April 2nd election. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, we have it in August and in November. Um, for the PPP in April, it's a four-day window. What's PPP? Uh, the presidential well, preference, preference right. primary <laughs> um, for the April election is four days uh, for the August uh, election. Assuming there's a primary, it's seven days. And, and that's then, for state offices, uh, state and um, senator. Yes, yeah, state. Yeah, state. Um, and then uh, in November, it's 14 days. And how does it work? Can you anyone can go to a polling place? Like no bit. polling place. So most towns will have one location. Um, if a town has 20,000 or more people, the legislative body of the town can decide to have additional locations. Um, and it will not look like what you're used to at a polling place, uh, meaning there has to be a real-time lookup. So someone will look you up in our voter registration system to make sure you are, in fact, eligible to vote and also make sure you have not previously voted. Um, then you'll get your ballot. It'll come with an envelope. Fill it out, secure it, put it in the receptacle, um, and then it's held, much like absentee ballots are, until Election Day when it will be opened and counted. I always wonder why we don't do more early counting. 
That makes flexing that crazy. It's against the law oh, in Connecticut. Law. Okay. There was a special um, law passed during COVID with an executive order that allowed us to open the outer envelope of absentee ballots. <laughs> um, three, uh, I think it was three days early. To But still on election day, they had to wait to open the inner. It takes a lot of time. And then uh, is this mostly going to be city clerk's offices? Uh, no, the registrars of voters oh, will so handle early voting. Town then, clerks do, handle absentee. And how are we doing with that? Do we have enough poll workers or is there any kind of syncing of systems we need or anything? Um, yeah, a lot of system work. Um, too detailed to get into here, but there will be a lot of new training, etc., with poll workers and registrars. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are working on that. Um, and we'll have a better idea by March, I would say, if we need additional poll workers for this April election. I think in November, we definitely will. Um, in our office, um, our uh, website will go live, I believe it's next week. Uh, so if anyone wants to sign up as a poll worker, they can do so through our website or go directly to their registrar voters. I know, there was a t- tough time in New Haven. Sometimes they open Sometimes late to a lot of people. Yeah. A policy issue, I think, coming up this term is, is voting while incarcerated. You know, um, some oh. people want to make sure that while you're in prison, you can vote. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, my focus right now is making sure that um, there are some system issues. So I'm trying to make sure people who are incarcerated, who have not lost the right to vote, so convicted of a misdemeanor, pre-trial detention you haven't even been convicted of anything you're you could be innocent sitting um but still incarcerated um and right now it is still challenging for them to vote in our current system um so we are trying to figure out how to tweak the process to make sure that those people can vote and then if the policy changes we are in a good place for everyone else to vote <laughs> most every time you're busy you're where you want to be yeah. and you're at the center of some of the most important issues that are going to be hitting connecticut in 2024 and beyond about how we keep our democracy strong thank have, you thank you so much for coming back in we love when you visit thank you i love being here and we wish you luck on year two of your first four-year term as secretary of state <laughs> thank you uh, thanks, Harry Droz. We're going to take a break, folks, about five, ten minutes. We'll come back with segment two with State Senator Gary Winfield. So lots to talk about. In the meantime, we'll listen to the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Hang tight. We'll catch you on the rebound at WNHH 103.5 FM. Mm-hmm.